Well, welcome. I'm glad you're here with us tonight. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we are discussing Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian church. You could uh, also call it a pastoral prayer. I also would like to uh, consider that the passage we're going to look at uh, would be a model prayer for us as believers to pray for one another. So it would not be a prayer just limited to ministers, not to mention just the Apostle Paul, but to the church um, visible, all of us. And so you can call it a model prayer, you can call it a pastoral prayer, a prayer for your brother or sister in Christ. Uh, but we find our text in verses 11 through 13, which says, Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. The New Testament contains many rich, instructive examples to us as believers. And I want to read to you a quote um, from uh, Arthur W. Pink. This came, uh, he's a noted Bible teacher from the 1940s, and he had to say this, How blessed it is to hear some age saint who has long walked with God and enjoyed intimate communion with Him, pouring out his heart before Him in adoration and supplication. But how much more blessed should we esteem it if we could have listened to the utterances of those who companied with Christ in person during the days when He tabernacled on this scene? And if one of the apostles were still here upon the earth, what a high privilege we should deem it to engage in hearing Him and to engage in prayer and such a high privilege that most of us would be willing to go a considerable distance through inconvenience and travel in order to be favored to hear the prayer and the praying apostle. And if our desires were granted how closely we would listen to His words, how diligently we would seek to treasure them up in our memories. Well, no such inconvenience and no such journey is required. It has pleased the Holy Spirit to record quite a number of the apostolic prayers for our instruction and for our satisfaction. That's what we have in front of us here. The majority of the prayers that are recorded in the New Testament are prayers that have been prayed by the Apostle Paul. It devotes more pages to His words and ministry than to those of any other individual except Jesus Christ. Paul is the main character in Acts chapter 14 through 28 and the author of 13 letters that record many of his prayers. Consistent with this picture of the apostle is Luke's description of the newly converted Saul of Tarsus into Paul where he says in Acts chapter 9, 11, he was praying. Paul was a praying man. 
and certainly he modeled the prayer to the Thessalonians. He also exemplified the pastoral prayer life that uh, was mentioned by the very considerable preacher uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, I take it that as a minister he is always praying. He is not always in the act of prayer, but he lives in the spirit of prayer. If you're a genuine minister of God, you will stand as the priest before the Lord, spiritually wearing the ephod and the breastplate whereon you bear the names of your children, pleading for them within the veil. What a beautiful picture. What a, what a beautiful commentary on this great preacher's mind concerning the Apostle Paul. And it's obvious that Paul was in the spirit of prayer from verse 1 of chapter 1 all the way through verse 10 of chapter 3 here in 1 Thessalonians. And it is there that he, up until that point, he did not offer a formal prayer until verse 11. And breaking into prayer at that crucial juncture in one of his letters, this is very typical of him. And for example, in Romans 1, 8 through 12, or Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, in Colossians 1, 9 through 12, or 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 2. You see this where he is moving in the text in a spirit of prayer before he actually formally offers up prayer for his recipients. It is certainly evident that he could not conclude the expression of his pastoral heart that we have just seen in verses 1 through 10 of this chapter without praying for the accomplishment of God's will to be done in the lives of God's people for whom he has been given charge over. And so I just want to speak a moment about the first clause of verse 11, and this may be the most detailed part of it, I know that there are different hearers to the message tonight that are listening to this, but to some they will find a benefit to this, and I, I pray that others, if you don't, you'll bear with it, but you're going to see great theology just in this first clause where he says, Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. Well, Listen, Paul's prayer took a distinctive form. Rather than addressing God, as you'll notice in the text, by the usual second-person pronoun, Paul, including the Thessalonians in his petition, addressed Him by name in the first person, our God and Father. Now the our is speaking to the Thessalonians in Him. Paul's petition utilized the Greek a mood known as the optative, optative, just in case you'd like to know how that's spelled, it's O-P-T-A-T-I-V-E, optative mood. The optative mood indicates in English, uh, is indicated in English by the word may. And so he says, now may, may our third person plural, God and Father Himself, first person singular. Alright? Our God and Father Himself and Jesus. What does He mean by now may? He is expressing a wishful thought. It expresses a wish. It's a form of prayer that was not 
Paul's normal approach, but he did use it at times. You'll see it again in chapter 5, and you'll see it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. But using the optative here allowed him to reiterate to the Thessalonians the sincere heart wishes he had concerning them, wishing for the best. He was, he, Paul directed this prayer to God the Father and Jesus the Lord, expressing the desire of both Father and Son might act upon his longing, that wishing that he had for them. Such linking of the Father and the Son are frequent in this epistle and emphasize the equality of the divine nature of both the Father and the Son. God the Father and God the Son. And by calling our Father, he's addressing the personal relationship in Jesus our Lord. Look what he says. Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord. So He's including them in this. And so the use of our before both God and after Jesus underscores the relationship Paul and the Thessalonians both enjoyed with both persons of the Trinity. Okay? God came down to be intimate with them as their gracious, loving, and forgiving Father, and Jesus ascended to the throne to be their sovereign Lord. So I think this is very significant to look at the grammatical structure of this clause. But there's something else here. He uses the word Himself. God and Father Himself. Why does He use the word Himself? The Greek word there is autos. It's doesn't mean much. In the English it means a little bit of something. And the singular and in the emphatic position in the Greek word provides further insight into the nature of the Godhead. Literally, verse 11 reads this way. Now listen, it reads, Now may Himself, our God and Father and Jesus Christ our Lord, direct our way to you. That's how it reads in the Greek. And so the use of the singular pronoun and the of Himself and the singular verb direct with the plural objects of our God and Father and Jesus our Lord underscores and emphasizes again the unmistakable unity of the Father and the Son in the Godhead. <laughs> I know you probably think that's some overkill, but right here you have some tremendous theology. You have some tremendous truth right here. The grammatical explanation and considerations help show us why Paul's prayer could assume the deity of Jesus and address Him equally as the Divine Father, as the Divine Father. And the Father and the Son are equally sovereign and perfectly agree in all matters, assured of those truths. Christian, Christians like Paul can direct all their prayers to either or both. That's the application of teaching you the grammar. You can address your prayers to either one because they are on the same level. And we learn this from the way the grammar is written. So see, you know, that, that may now, may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. Well, you know, that may not that may not really impress you, but look what it's taught you. You can, you can pray to God, or you can pray to Jesus, or you can pray to both. 
I think that's a great thing to learn and that we learn from the grammar. And so I want you to, first of all, I have three things in here. The, the, the main thing I want you to see by way of now doing the exposition of the rest of the text is to see the purpose of Paul's prayer. The purpose of Paul's prayer. We've seen the form of his prayer. Now I want to talk about the purpose of his prayer and there's going to be three things that come under this. The purpose of his prayer is he says in the, the next clause in verse, thir in verse 11 is direct our way to you. Direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another for all people just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul's prayer here is a definitive model. It is a definitive model of conscientious pastoral intercession. You might want to write that down. It is a definitive model of conscientious pastoral intercession. He had a threefold purpose in offering it, that, he would, that God would grant the Thessalonians a perfecting faith, a prospering love, and a purifying hope. A perfecting faith, a prospering love, and a purifying hope. That is a familiar triad that you may have recognized from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. Now these things remain, faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Paul was genuinely concerned that these people grow in each of these spiritual realities as is evident in the beginning of the letter where he says in verse 3, he is constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast hope. There's that triad again. Faith, love, and hope. Or as it is in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. This is a, this is a familiar triad in the New Testament. And certainly the Holy Spirit's inspiration uh, to the Apostle Paul as he writes his letters. So concerning a, well, in, in fact, let me just tell you one other thing. In, uh, in, a, in a 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Let us put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, the hope of salvation. There's the triad again. So I think we've made the point on that. Um, this is familiar for Paul. So specifically, Let's talk, number one, about a perfecting faith. He pray, his pastoral prayer is for a perfecting faith. Our prayers for our brothers and sisters in Christ should be no less. We should pray for a perfecting faith for them. And he says, direct our way to you at the end of verse 11. Direct our way to you. The foremost motivation of Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians was that their faith would grow. He wanted their faith to grow. The apostle did not explicitly say that within the prayer, but he identified 
the goal of the prayer when he says, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Where is that? Verse 10. It's right there before he says this. Complete could be translated perfect, to be made perfect. He wanted to return to help complete or to perfect the weaknesses and defects in their faith. He says that right there in verse 10, right before the beginning of our verse. He gave, the, if you read Ephesians chapter 4, for example, verses 11 through 12, you have uh, the roles of, of ministry. He says he, the, what's known as the fivefold ministry. He says he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the works of service, and building up the body of Christ. Well, how do you build it up? You build it up. What are you building up? You're building up their faith. Because faith works. We don't work to have faith. We work because we have faith. And so that spiritual work of edification, he asked God and Jesus to direct his way to them. This word direct conveys the idea of laying out a straight, smooth path with all the obstacles moved removed. Up to this time, satanically in instigating circumstances had um, instigated circumstances had prevented Paul from coming to Thessalonia. The, uh, the apostle knew that the only power of the Lord could come, could overcome Satan. Only he could and allow him to return and it is his desire to return to them. And so he asked the Lord that it will happen by His will, that He will clear out the obstacles and make the path plain and smooth for Him to get there. And His intention was not to return and lead the Thessalonians into some kind of emotional experience that would merely attempt to get them believing more fervently than they already knew. Rather, he, he wanted to expand their knowledge through the revealed truth of God, which would in turn enlarge their trust in Him and enable them to walk with Him in greater obedience to His will. And so Paul was ministering under the divine mandate to teach the truth, which meant feeding them the Scripture so that they could mature by it. And this is the principle that is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. He says, Like newborn babes that long for pure milk of the Word, so that you may grow in respect of salvation. I said this the other day, and I mean it. I didn't mean to be unkind about it, but you must know there are only two kinds of preachers. There are those who preach the Word of God, which is the truth of God, and those who need to resign. That's it. There are those who preach the Word of God, which is the truth of God, and those who need to resign. And He is going there to teach them the Word. He's going there to teach them the Word. He's not telling them how to have their best life. He's not telling them how to be the best they can be. He's not, telling, he's not a psychologist. He's a pastor, for heaven's sakes. He is there to help promote the gospel, and the gospel is Jesus Christ, and the gospel in them, and that is to take them from death to life, to take them from those who know sin to become those who are the very righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. And so the precepts and the, and the principles and the promises of Scripture are windows through which believers look to see God and to understand His glory and His will for their lives. 
and their response to the truth of God's Word also allows them to know if their faith is growing. If their faith is growing, that, that growth is evident when their knowledge of God's Word is increasing. That's the first thing. You might want to write this down. You know that growth is evident when the knowledge of God's Word is increasing in you. When, when the confidence of God is greater than it was before. When your trust in His sovereignty is stronger than it has ever been before. That, you're in, that your obedience to Him is more consistent and that you're finding joy in the trials of life. That's what he went to teach them. So Paul's prayer begins with the request of the Father to use him to mature the believers and strengthen the believers that are the Thessalonians, to strengthen, yes, their faith, which was the foundation they needed for obedient, dynamic, and powerful Christian living. We all need not only faith, we need a vigorous faith, a strong faith. Even though he did not return to Thessalonica, Paul saw his desires realized, however, as evidenced by what he wrote to them a few months later in his second letter when he said, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged. What a, what a blessing. And so look in verse 12, he says, And may the Lord cause you to... Well, I, I skipped a page, excuse me. And then he says, That they may complete what is lacking in your faith. And so what you have here is Paul begins this, this perspective and he says... We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as if only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged. So he speaks to them of a perfecting faith. A perfecting faith. That's the first part. His desire to come to them. To strengthen it. To enlarge it. And then you see a prospering love. He prays for a prospering love here in verse 12, and he says, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another, for all people, just as we also do for you. The Apostle Paul knew that genuine believers would exhibit genuine love. Therefore, he prayed that the Thessalonians' growing faith would be accompanied by prospering love. And that's why Paul asked the Lord to cause the Thessalonians to love, Thessalonians' love to grow. This indicates he depended on God for the development of spiritual virtues. There's a reason the Bible says, with man it is impossible, with God all things are possible. The development of spiritual virtues comes from God's personal development in our person. Whether it was beginning of the Christian life, which is justification, or the process of spiritual growth, which is known as sanctification, God revealed that He ultimately deserves the credit for believers' maturity. If you want to look at some verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6-7. through 7. You can cross-reference it with 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 9, verse 8. 
in Galatians 2, 20. Paul's statement again in chapter 1, verse 3 says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love. And in chapter 3, verse 6, he said, good news of your faith and love are clear evidence of the Thessalonians' love. He wants them to be perfected in this love. And, in, and, and so what happens? He prayed they would increase and abound in love. He prayed that they would increase and abound in love, that they would be prospering in love. And that word love there is agape, the divine love, the unconditional love. And you see the text in that love which is the purest and noblest, agape love. Paul asked first that their love would increase and abound for one another. That is within the church. There are more than 30 positive and negative one another's in the New Testament, and love appears by far the most often, that you love one another. You bear with one another, and so forth and so on. The reality here is, second, the apostle prayed that their love for all people would increase. It's not just the Christian's duty to love one another in an increasing way, but it is our calling and it is the prayer of this apostle which is just putting to words on paper what the Spirit of God is revealing that the apostle prayed that their love for all people would increase as well. He wanted them to have a greater love for the lost. He wanted them to have a greater love for those who persecuted them. He wanted them to have a greater love for those who ruled over them. Even Jesus commanded His disciples, do you remember? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is wholly consistent, totally holy and consistent with the teachings of Jesus. You see other New Testament injunctions concerning all people include pursuing peace in Romans chapter 8 verse 18. There is the injunction for all people, uh, for doing good to all people in Galatians 6 verse 10. For being patient with all people in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2. For praying for all people in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1 and showing consideration for all people in Titus chapter 3 verse 2, and for honoring all people in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 17. You realize that? Did you realize that? It's not that we just grow and abound in love for each other that are in the church. It's we're to grow in love even more and abound in love for all people. And that we are to pursue peace, doing good, being patient, praying, showing consideration, and honoring them. And to provide them a practical example to understand that love, Paul told the Thessalonians they should just love as he also loved them. That's what he says in the text. Just as we also do for you. He loved them when, he were, when they were strangers in great spiritual need by sacrificially bringing the gospel to them. Then after they received their justification, He loved them 
by the living sacrifice of His life and their sanctification. Look over here in chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. He said, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So there you have it. You have a perfecting faith, a prospering love, and a purifying hope. A purifying hope. In verse 13, "...so that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before, the, before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all His saints." The final objective of Paul's prayer here is that the is for the Thessalonians that they might look to their glorification. He has thanked God for their, ju their justification, their sanctification, and now he has them to look towards their glorification, which produces a purifying hope. All the good qualities of a strong faith and a vibrant love are incomplete unless they point to a genuine hope. And Paul reminded the Romans, if you recall, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God." And by nature of hope is best stated in 1 John 3 verse 2 where it says, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet that we will be. We know that when He appears we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Hallelujah. Glory to the Lord. So the only way the Thessalonians would actually live in such hope was for God to establish their hearts without blame and holiness before Him, as it says right here. Literally, it means right here in verse 12, in the presence of Him. In the presence of Him. Paul expresses a similar sentiment in chapter 5, verse 23, when he says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He knew the one person who cared most about the Thessalonians' purifying hope was God Himself, and only He truly knows what's in the people's heart. And what Paul wanted them to do, what he wanted them to be as impure of heart so that they desire the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the judge. Now this word coming is that word that many of you know that is parousia, the parousia. That means it's the end, the coming of Christ, the parousia. The apostle knew that the promise of Christ's return and the reward of the church is the essence of believers purifying hope, the parousia, the second coming. And he explains the event in chapters 4 verses 13 through 18, which we will talk about soon. That this hope produces comfort. It produces comfort. The believers knowing that when Christ comes to reward His people, they will have their works evaluated before the judgment seat. And that is a motivation to holy living. And Paul focuses on the heart because it is the seat of the human emotions, its thought, and its purposes. And so he says in the text, if their heart, notice the word heart, 
He says, if their hearts were pure, clean, and righteous, and they were able to stand against temptation, that would free them from the shame and the embarrassment before the Lord and cause them to eagerly look for His coming. The believer's appearance before God is truly the consummation of His sanctification. We read this specifically in Romans chapter 8, verse 17 and 30. So in contrast to obedient believers looking forward to Christ's appearing, listen, sinning believers are not eager for it because their sin has interrupted and exposed, been exposed to the presence of the Lord. Such disobedient Christians are like disobedient children who do not want their parents to catch them doing wrong. They're still children because they're children by birth. Those that belong to God are His by birth. And like lawbreakers who least of all wish to, to, for the arrival of the police, so it is with a Christian who practices sin openly and privately. Those who walk in sin. What makes obedience believer, obedient believers, though, hope for the Lord's return is that is, it is holiness that seeks pure fellowship with the Holy One. And such purity that initially inspires hope also produces greater hope. Just as John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, saying, And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So they actively pursue the point of improval to be pure, to be like Christ. They put their back into it. They work at it. Whereas Paul prayed that God would purify the Thessalonians' hope, Peter, Peter pled directly with the reader that they would live pure and hopeful lives. Just like I said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 19, I, I copied it. Listen to this. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in the Spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the former lust which you were, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on the earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold or from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as the Lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ. You see... Again, the supernatural reality of sanctification is all of God's, is all the work of God, and the same time, at the same time, dependent on the obedience of the believer. So he prayed that the Thessalonians would have a purifying hope, and it actually extends beyond that congregation. His request was that God would, notice your text, it says, would establish their hearts without blame and holiness with all His saints. And this, the apostle desire, 
the apostle desires may be at the coming of the Lord Jesus or unto the coming of Him as is mentioned in chapter 5 verse 23. So let me break it down for you what he's saying here. The apostles' desire is that they be blameless in holiness at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Either at death, when He comes into His garden and gathers His lilies and takes him, His to Himself to be forever with Him, or at the day of judgment when He comes to judge the quick and the dead, which coming of His is certain and will quickly and suddenly be upon us and with great glory and power. And we need to add here, He mentions these words, with all the saints. With all the saints. Now some commentators say that also means the angels. The saints are not angels. They are the redeemed of God. The angels are created higher than the saints, but it is the saints that will judge the angels. And so he is talking about all the saints, the souls of his people, whom he will bring with him and will raise their dead bodies and reunite them with their souls when they shall be forever with him and they shall be unblemished in holiness, both in body and soul, and, he sh and shall be presented by him first to himself and then to his father faultless and without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. What a glorious truth. So he wanted all of the other elect, all of the other elect, all of the other genuine followers of Christ, all the other born-again believers to be pure and set apart from worldliness. And some commentators, again I said this earlier, say that this, this concept of all his saints refers to the angels and the believers. You may have been familiar with that. Your Bible may be a study Bible and say that down in the footnotes. Disregard that. It's the saints of God. The saints of God are His people. And since that expression is not used in the New Testament any other place, it is only used here to equate it with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is not coming for the angels. He's coming for the saints. With the gathering of the church in chapter, in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and her arrival in the place prepared for her, as it's mentioned in John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am you may also be. If it were not so, I would not tell you. I shall come back for you and take you to be with me. Be anxious for nothing. Well, that's actually Philippians. And then he talks about, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so here's the idea. When they come, when, when they, they are gathered together, they are taken to the place that has been prepared for, for them. The church is gathered together. She is taken to the place that has been prepared for him. And then comes the reward. And that's Revelation 22, verse 12. At the judgment seat of Christ where the believers will be rewarded for their faithfulness and obedience. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 11 through 14 describes reward even as a judgment of works. Reward, notice not punishment, reward. And yet in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 it is clear that reward will come on the basis of what motivated these works. The glory of this reward is the theme of Romans chapter 8 verses 17 through 18, Colossians chapter 3 verse 4, and many other Bible passages that have been written by Paul and also the Apostle Peter. So what you have here with this, this, this time, this form of Paul's prayer, we see that before that we can pray to God, 
or we, the Father, or we can, pray, we can pray to Jesus, or we can pray to both. We have, we've shown in verse 11 the significance of the grammar. Now may God the Father, God, let's have, look how he says it, and now may God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that we can pray to either one, and then you see the form of his prayer. And what does it include? It includes these, uh, these ideas here, these expressions, simply a perfecting faith. This purpose of the prayer was a perfecting faith. It was a, a prospering love for a prospering love and for a purifying hope. He prayed for that. He prayed that their faith would be perfected. He prayed that their love would prosper. And he prayed that their hope would be purified as they looked beyond their justification and their sanctification and looked unto the Lord for their glorification. So in conclusion, the focus on hope concludes the Apostle Paul's brief pastoral prayer for his beloved Thessalonians. His request that God would perfect their faith, prosper their love, and purify their hope model, model, models how all pastors and elders ought to pray for their people. But it also shows us how we should pray for each other as believers. We should pray that our brothers and sisters would, would God would perfect their faith and prosper their love and purify their hope. We should pray that this is a pattern of prayer not only for the clergy, but for all the people of God. And His entreaty, this, this whole section, establishes a general devotion of prayer that must accompany any sincere ministry of the Word. And so that is the Word of God tonight. Thank you for joining us. God bless you. We'll see you soon.